So good evening, everyone. It's very honored honored to be here uh, near the uh, ten thousand Buddhas. Buddha Apatar, Kijai. Some of you may know, some of you may not, because we're meeting for the first time, but um, we have an ashram not, not far from here in Philo, Anderson Valley, and uh, we invite you to visit with us at your uh, convenience. And it's a beautiful setting. We have a, our own uh, dairy there, some of the members of the congregation here uh, get their fresh milk from us. We deliver to Ukiah. For those of you who are interested in um, Goseva. My father is the number one consumer. Mm. Yeah, good. good. Very good. And um, we have a beautiful presence of Sriman Chaitanya Mahabhu and Nitananda Prabhu there. And I spend a good part of the summer and other parts of the year here as well, while not traveling to other ashrams. But at any rate, again, as I began, it's a privilege to be here amongst you, so many persons and devotees interested in the Dharma. And with that, in that regard, of course, as a member of the prestigious and auspicious lineage of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and a particular branch of that that's sometimes referred to as the Bhakti Vinod Puribhara, the, the family of Bhakti Vinod, who was a, a very powerful and influential person in the Gaudiya uh, lineage, who appeared, as, as many of you know, a couple hundred years ago, maybe not quite that long, but in the uh, it was prominent at the end of the 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, and prominent not only in in India and in, in, in Bengal, Calcutta, that area, but um, prominent in the sense of reaching out as he did to the Western world. Uh, that. Um, with a vision and inspiration that uh, we're very much the result of here in terms of gathering and, and chanting the holy name of Krishna in Western countries and so forth. <clears throat> he himself was um, in one sense the first Western convert <laughs> although he was uh, born in, in, in Bharata in India he had a western education and uh, had developed as a result of that a, um, a particular bias that uh, left him with not much regard for the Bhagavat Srimad Bhagavatam Srimad Bhagavatam is of course a very um, important text for among the, the sacred texts of the Hindus 
And um, for that reason, it's known as, referred to by the text itself and by other Puranas as well, as Srimad Bhagavatam, rather than as the Kurma Purana, Shiva Purana, Vishnu Purana, Padma Purana, it could have been the Bhagavad Purana, that's kind of a shortcut name for the book, but the official name, as it appears in the text itself, and as it is, appears in other Puranas, is Srimad Bhagavatam. The very name itself distinguishes it from the other Puranas. And while distinguishing itself amongst the Puranas, and while being distinguished from the other Puranas by the Puranas themselves, the text is also identified with the with the Shruti. Shruti means that that which is heard. So it's thought to be the the texts that have no human origin amongst the Hindu sacred texts, so to speak, spoken by God Himself, something like the breath of God, the sound of God. And the Puranas would be amongst the literatures that are then um, authored. upon reflecting upon the sounds. Those sounds are something like, in modern times, it's thought that among some and in the majority of mathematicians, that mathematical equations by which we very precisely uh, can understand certain things about matter for example, we can understand from a uh, modern science perspective that there, there are quarks. You can't see a quark inside the atom. I'm speaking in the subatomic, subatomic world. But there are mathematic equations that tell us that they're there. And if we act as if they are, then in a very pragmatic way we can get certain results. Very much living on these mathematical equations and the facts, if you will, about them, understood from them in the hands of technology. And um, so we have cell phones and and so many things, modern gizmos and, and gadgets and so forth. So the point I'm making only is that there are very um, mathematical equations that are either invented by humans or, as the majority of mathematicians think, they're discovered by humans. They're kind of a logic that's embedded into nature. And similarly, from the uh, Hindu perspective, there are, there are sound, sound formulas that are somewhat like mathematical equations, in a sense, also embedded in, into nature. Um, sound uh, categorizes things. So it's thought that the Brahma by sound categorized and divided the world into a secondary type of creation. Creation by sound. I saw a um, video the other day of, of a, um, a, an invention from some um, members of the Harvard University 
sound invention that puts out fire. They, was, they start a fire with some gasoline, and then they bring this thing, and it makes a sound, and the fire goes out. <laughs> so it's an interesting uh, experiment, if you will, with, uh, with the power of sound, just like we have invest, invest, experimented with the power of fire, form of electricity, to have so many things that you would never thought, a caveman would have never thought would come out of a spark, hmm? a computer, for example. Um, so... Uh, sound is another element, if you will, like fire, like water, like earth. And um, there's some power in that, materially speaking. And as there are sounds from the Vedic perspective that can be discovered and can tell us something about this world, and in a sense through which the world comes about, from the Hindu perspective, there are sounds by which the world can be transcended as well. Hmm? And um, these sounds are the shruti, as I say, these kind of the breath of God, as they're thought of metaphorically, are then reflected upon uh, in secondary <coughs> literatures. And while the Srimad Bhagavatam is a secondary literature in this sense, it nonetheless is distinguished amongst secondary literatures, the Puranas. And furthermore, it is thought to be, at the same time, a a, um, a shruti. Shruti sarum may come. It describes itself. Shruti sarum. Sarum means cream. It rises to the top, or the essence. So the essence of the shruti can be found in not the Bhagavad Purana, but Sriman Bhagavatam. Again, it has a peculiar name that distinguishes it. And uh, that name also speaks about the, the nature of the subject matter of the book. As you know, the Bhagavatam, Srimad Bhagavatam, is about Krishna. It has 12 cantos. The 10th canto is the largest, almost as large as all the other 12 put together. And there the story of Krishna is found. Mm-hmm. It's found in a particular way, though, of course. It's found from different loving perspectives, from a parental loving perspective, from a friendly loving perspective, from a romantic loving perspective in which God is the object. Hmm. And um, so the book is more about love of Krishna than it is about Krishna. But it's difficult to separate the two. Hmm. If you have a teacher... A fellow, not so long ago, I saw on the internet announced that he was decided to be a guru. I didn't say anything, but I thought, does anybody agree with you? (laughs) That would help. In other words, I could say I was a teacher, but if I don't have a student, then it's rather meaningless. So the the two are one, and, and they're different at the same time. You can't have one without the other. Follow me. There's a teacher-student relationship. The teacher, the student makes the teacher. The student declares the teacher. Really, the teacher doesn't declare himself or herself, but the student makes such a declaration. I see you as my teacher. Therefore, then he must or she must accept. If you've 
you know, if you, you've created the problem, then you have to deal with it. So, if in, if you create faith in others, then you have to deal with that. Hmm? Because then that faith will come back to you and say, "My, I have something to gain something from you now. It's valuable. I find it. Faith, faith is nourishing. I mean, it's the opposite of doubt. So, it frees us. Pujapatrita Maharaj, our Guru Maharaj used to say, suspicion leads to suspension. In Gita, Bhagavad Gita, Krishna said, said identifies faith Shraddhayam Purusha. Faith is uh, um, a person is their faith. Faith is the animating principle. Again, if we have doubt, then we won't hesitate. Intellect is a doubting function, questioning function. Just like I sit here, you sit here, you listen to me with your intellect, and you're not ready to just let anything go into your heart. You want to think it out, and, and so forth. So the doubting, is some, it's okay, it's good. We should come and sit before a teacher and doubt. That's really what we should do. And that means to express the doubts, questions, and if he or she can answer them, then we know what to do. Then freed from the doubts, we can move forward, Right? So intellect is good, but in this world, an intellect-guided life is a life in which we proceed with caution. That cannot be the home. At home, we don't proceed with caution. If you're at home, you don't, and your mother or your wife or your husband puts food on the table and says, eat here, cook something for you. You don't say, let me read the labels and see what's in it and so forth. But if you go to the store or another country or something, you may want to read the labels and see what, what's there. But in the home, then we move freely. I'm reminded in this regard of, uh, again, Puja Patrita Mersh used to say to us that Uh, what did he say? Thank you is a. He say thank you is a. Separate account. It's a. It's yeah. It's 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 a. Radharani says in the through the pen of, um, Kavikarnapur and his Ananda Brindavan Champu that someone who says I love you knows nothing about love because in love when you say I love you there's I and then there's you and there's this, this separation. <laughs> Hmm? <laughs> so thank you is also some similar some form of some separation so in love it goes without saying right hmm? in love the, 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 the intellect is it functions in a different way it still functions here for example we may use our intellect to question whether or not there is God hmm? but if we enter into the world of God in Lila Seva then the intellect will function a different way. How to best serve God in any given situation. This is an example of, of intellect becoming beautiful by being an attendant to, and a servant of faith. 
In the modern world, it's often thought that faith is a departure from thinking, from intellect, from reason. But reason actually becomes most beautiful when it attends to faith. Reason, after all, is is, is a bit of a fence-sitting affair. Hmm? You may sit and reason about it, think about it, but faith, credo in the Latin, is, it implies action, movement. So again, if we go back to the Gita, where Krishna says that faith is the, a person is their faith, it's the very animating principle in life. We use again the adage of Pujapachitamrsa, suspicion leads to suspension. If we doubt, then we cannot go forward. So there's a world of faith, planets of faith. And there, it is described that everything is animate. Shri Akanta Kanta Parama Purusha Kalpataravo Dhruma Bhumis Chintamani Ganamaito Yamamitam This is a poetic description, but the trees are have uh, not just apples, not just apples and pears and peaches, but they are Kalpabriksha. Mm. means uh, the wish-fulfilling trees. The cows are kamdenu, denu, but kamdenu. Their udders can fulfill all desires, something like that. So it's um, everything alive, everything moving, Mm. alokik. It means, the idea is that that in a land of faith, everything is animate. There is a ground of being. We are a member of the ground of being, of consciousness. But in bhakti and in discourse of Bhagavatam, the, the lesson is to learn to dance on the ground of being, to move on the ground of being. Now we move in a different way. We move on a ground that is not firm. We are trying to erect a home, a house, and stand on ground that will support us. But the perception is that it could be the the rug, if you will, could be taken out from underneath our feet at any moment. We buy a house, but there could be the housing market crash and you could lose your job and just to use a crude example and we can give many examples in practical everyday life of how we try to get some standing and it's despite our efforts what we've fought for as a right and a place of our own um, talk to the redwoods who owns what they're standing here for thousands of years. How many people have claimed this plot for their own and thought it to be so? Only, only for time to tell them otherwise. So there's no, there's no firm ground here is the point. It looks like there's firm ground. It's kind of like a musical chairs. You know, there was a game we used to play when we were kids called musical chairs. There would be a little song and then it would go around and then it would stop. Everybody would take a chair and there would be ten people in the game, but there were only nine chairs. 
and then there'd be only eight chairs, and then there'd be seven chairs. So at the end of each song, there was one chair less and one less person in the game. So the world is something like that. There's no firm ground to stand on here. We're pursuing such firm ground to stand on, an enduring life and a happy life, but all in relation to things that don't endure and in and of, in and of themselves have no happiness. Happiness is a quality. Matter has no qualities. The primary qualities, characteristics, are thought to be quantitative from a scientific point of view. Velocity, mass, weight, smell, taste. These are subjective. They're not thought in modern science to be inherent in the objective reality. Now the Sankhya philosophy of the Bhagavad disagrees with that to some extent because it posits a, a subtle psychic form of matter and a gross objective form of matter. So matter has some qualitative aspects from the Sankhya perspective, but those are derived from consciousness proper itself, the supersubjective reflecting on subtle matter. But from the modern scientific point of view, as I say, matter has no qualities. It has only quantities. Happiness is, is qualitative, not quantitative. It's a subjective experience. So we cannot, the matter, from, from a modern scientific perspective, has no happiness in it. Do you follow? So we are seeking happiness. We seek it in relation to matter and to thing, in relation to things. We seek it in relation to things and we seek happiness in an enduring sense. The things have no happiness in them and the things don't endure. Everything is here today and gone tomorrow as they say. What about thoughts then? Well, from a modern scientific point of view, for the most part, the majority opinion is thoughts don't matter. Mind is really physical. You just have to demonstrate it at some point. This is, they'll never do that, of course. But even if we accept that there is a psychic dimension of matter, as we do, for example, in our school, the thoughts that we have are preoccupied with things. We've already concluded that the things don't endure and they have no inherent happiness in them. So in pursuit of enduring happiness, we would be foolish to look in relation to things or in relation to thoughts that are all absorbed in things. Do you follow me? Because we have thoughts that are absorbed in things, we think we might be happy. But we should think again. (laughs) Think again. This is a folly. 
to pursue enduring happiness in relation to that which does not endure. However you want to think about it. These are some very conclusive thoughts, if you will, coming from, for example, the Buddha. He sat under a tree. That's all he did. Big thing. He stopped thinking, is the point. He stopped thinking. Something wonderful came from that. So, beyond things, beyond thought, there is the self. This is the Vedic idea. In matter, there is no happiness. So to pursue happiness, enduring happiness in relation to matter, is ignorance. And it's a, it's really, a, it's it's the cause of suffering. In the Gita, Krishna very beautifully sums this up when he tells Arjuna, the material world can be described in two words, dukalayam, ashashvatam. Dukkha, dukkha means suffering. He says, it is a realm of suffering. And it, as if, it is as if Arjuna thought, yes, but I like it. When Krishna said, Dukalayam, and then Krishna responded, Ashashvatam. So if I say to you, it is an abode, a realm of suffering, and you say, well, I, I kind of like it. And then I say, Ashashvatam. It's temporary. It's impermanent. You cannot keep it. If you're smart, what have you learned? Oh, the more I like it, the more of a recipe for suffering it is, because I can't keep it. If I like it, and then I can't keep it, <laughs> it becomes more problematic for me. Dukkalayam ashashvatam. So it's wise, then, to look elsewhere. Look into the looker, if you will. Look into the observer, the self, who can, uh, who has a sense, that's us, I'm speaking of the Atma, who has a sense that impermanence is foreign. Impermanence is, this is a Buddhist teaching, of course, it carries into the Bhagavata also, obviously. The world is pervaded by impermanence. We are constantly resisting this impermanence. Why? If we were also part of the impermanence, we would have no resistance to it. We resist impermanence because we are not impermanent. Hmm? We're not part of the transformation of nature. Therefore, we can observe it. You have to be separate from the change, really, to observe it. Just like you, you see it, you see a young boy and say, my gosh, you've grown. He's thinking, well, whatever. <laughs> oh, you're so big now. He said, hmm. I'm, he's thinking, I'm the same. Nothing's changed. Except you. <laughs> you look different. So, because I'm just giving a simple example, he's part of the ch- change. You, you all have the experience. You don't see some somebody's children for years, and then you see them. My goodness! Hmm? So you're separate from the change. You can observe. If you're flying in an airplane at a very high uh, high speed from the ground, I can look and see. Whoa, it's going very fast. Sitting in the plane, you're part of that. You don't feel like you just you're kind of just sitting up there. 
Hmm? You don't feel like you're going 500 miles an hour. Hmm? So our observance of the, of the transformation of nature and its impermanence hmm, is possible because we're not part of the change. Therefore, the self is called sat, described as sat. It means real, it means not subject to transformation, in that sense real. Because if a thing appears, what happens? If, what would happen if I, if I went, opened my hand and a flower appeared? And then I closed it and it disappeared. You would say, that was pretty good magic, Swami. Hmm? But you would call it magic, right? Not real, but magic. So, from the Vedic perspective and the perspective of Vedanta, the whole world is magic. Things appear and disappear. Hmm? All the time, that's what's happening. They appear and they disappear. <laughs> it's the one big magic show, right, right before your eyes. Hmm? Prince Charming's turn into monsters, also. Right? <laughs> it happens. In dreams, it happens faster, but in a waking state, it happens. It just takes a little longer hmm? for these changes to take place. So, therefore, the Vedanta says, it's not real, it's magic. It's something. It's the magic of Vishnu Maya. There's two sides to Maya. Guna Maya, Maya means illusion. Maya means that which is not. Maya means to measure, also. Measure is that thing we do with our intellect. We try to calculate, measure. And by that we try to control and get some security. Hmm? This is what we're trying to do with our intellect. Hmm? Maya means to measure, and Maya means illusion. It means you cannot measure. You can measure a little part here, a little part there, and you can get a pragmatic result from it. You can get a machine from it that does this or that. But to measure the whole thing and bring it in the fist of your intellect, that is not possible. Hmm? Two kinds of maya, gunamaya and jiva-maya. Gunamaya means what is the makeup of maya? What is the makeup of matter? This is what life is about. What's out there? And who's in here? Saying something's out there. And observing it. This is all there is to life. Some something's in something's observing something that's being observed. What's observing and what's being observed? They're quite different. The observed is experienced, the observer is experiencing. You can think about it for a moment. It won't take you long. Does is it possible for experience to arise out of an experiencing reality to arise out of a non-experiencing reality? Obviously not. Can experience arise out of non-experience? What will arise out of (laughs) non-experience? Certainly not an experience. Hmm? You see? We are experiencing. 
Something is being experienced. We didn't arise out of it. We're different from it. In modern science, the majority of opinion is, unfortunately, that experiential reality arises out of a sophisticated combination of non-experiencing reality we call the brain. The brain is not constituted of any other basic things than any other material manifestation. If you take two billiard balls on a pool table and you shoot with a pool stick like that, one ball into the other ball, one knocks the other ball, you will never expect one of the balls to say, ouch, or to say, could you put a little more chalk on that stick? I mean, it's silly, we laugh, right? This is the pro- but this is the proposition of modern science. Is that silly? They say, faith is magical thinking. This is magical thinking, a departure from reason. Hmm? What is their reasoning? Their reasoning is that at some point, that pool ball is going to say, ouch. In other words, at some point, matter, that's the same basic stuff, atoms, if you will, that make up a pool ball, make up your brain. We just arrange the pool ball differently. We haven't added anything to it. We've just arranged it differently. And, and now it's going to start saying, experiencing. Hmm. You might th- they might think of it as, as an evolutionary development, consciousness. But even the evolutionary theory is based on a premise that that which evolves hmm, is not something entirely new or different, but it has some correspondence with that which it evolves out of. It's a development of something. Do you understand? Experience is not a development of non-experience. It's an entirely new and absolutely different thing. Consciousness is not like any thing. That's why we can't define it very well because we have no thing to compare it to. We define things by comparing one thing to another. Hmm? But it's not a thing. It's more than a thing. It's more than a thought. So when we come to this understanding with the help of sacred texts, for example, and the introspection that they call for, then we can come to knowledge. We can come to the knowledge that I exist. Sat. I'm real. I'm not a magic show. They may think religion is magical thinking. I think it is magical thinking to think that matter will suddenly which is non-experiential reality, will become an experiencing reality. That would be rather magical if the floor started saying, could you guys move over a little bit? You've been sitting on this one spot for too long. This is the same idea as the brain starts to do that. You understand? 
So no. We are yearned of experiencing reality. We are sat. We are real. Hmm? Not here today, gone tomorrow. And we are knowing reality. There could be a, an existing reality that was unknowing, but if you have a knowing reality, it has to exist also. Hmm? So we are we exist and we know that we exist. We think when we are identified with mind and body that I am this or I am that. I am Californian, I am Indian, I am Latino, I am woman, I am man, I am this or I am that. The Shruti says, neti neti, you're not this, you're not that, not this, you're not that. You are though, but you're not this or that. You are. You're not this, you're not that. How much bigger is I am than I am this or I am that? All the thises and thats are very, very, very small. Hmm? And none of them endure. I may say, I am Latino. I am American. I am Central American. I am North American. I am Indian. I am an earthling. <laughs> All those things will pass, right? Redwoods standing, watching for thousands of years. We're changing. The matter's changing. Always in flux. Some things last longer, like redwoods. They're watching. (laughs) But they change too. All things change. If you stay identified with a world that's constantly in flux, it will keep changing around you. Reforming. Changing. Reforming. And you're generating the the, the, the transformation. We exist. We can know that we exist. Such it. And we have, there's something for us to do also, if we're wise. If we're wise and we know that we exist, we have no threat of non-existence, we have no fear, no anxiety. We start, when we use terms like this, we have no fear, we have no anxiety, there's no death. We're starting to talk about something in a vague way that's positive. You understand me? I have no fear. I have no death. I have something in that negative explanation. Hmm? Because those things are all negatives. If I have no negatives, I have some kind of quasi-positive. It's not fully developed but it's positive. If I'm free from the negatives, in mathematics we have ne- negative numbers, right? Negative one, negative two, negative three, negative four, and we have zero. So zero is full compared to negative numbers, right? So this is the wisdom then. Wisdom of the Buddha, for example. The wisdom of a Shankar. Hmm? It's the wisdom of the Gita also, but the Gita and the Bhagavad, Srimad Bhagavad, want to take us a little further. Very, they have a very, very bold perspective because so much talk among so many of different sects of transcendentalists is about, I'm not this, I'm not that. Hmm? All these small things. I'm not a Republican, I'm not a Democrat, I'm not an American. 
these are the nationalism, this uh, uh, sexism, nationalism, this, this is and that. These are all small ideas, small ideas. Hmm? That I am is so much bigger than that. It trans. I'm, I am, regardless of what I might think I am identifying with this or that. That's constant. So to separate out the constant, that which endures, from that which comes and goes. It's huge. It's a huge thing. Hmm? Therefore, zero is positive in the way, in terms of the way we're talking about it. And it's so positive, it's so big, that most schools of thought just stop there. I am. Wow and sit peacefully and love to be. Loving to exist without any fear, any anxiety. I just am. It's kind of blissful. You can imagine. Compared to our present life that's full of anxiety, we're constantly, the mind is constantly concerned about something, about some problem. Constantly dealing with it. Life is full of some type of trepidation. Even going to a social gathering, we have trepidation. How will I come off? You know, <laughs> how did I sound? Or, you know, what uh, what did they think of me? And it's just just like you see, you know, you, you go out and they see a bird, and you go, oh, and the bird flies off. We're just like that, more or less. <laughs> just a whole package of fear. Really, it pervades material existence. So to end fear, if you knew the extent to which you existed, you'd have no fear. You could just take a, a huge, ah, you know, ah, that is the beginning of the Sanskrit alphabet. <laughs> ah, ah, ah. <laughs> so it's so, that's such a big thing that you can understand why some philosophers would stop there. It just stop there. It dissolves everything, all the, everything else. It speaks about a way of leaving behind the world of things and thoughts, and entering into the into the more that you are. As humans, we have a sense that there's more to life than what meets the eye and the mind. Don't you? I've given this example before. Birds, they fly high in the sky. Right? Like the eagle flies high in the sky. What does a fish do? Goes down in the ocean. Right? Fish don't try to fly high in the sky. And birds don't try to dive to the bottom of the ocean. They know their place. Humans, on the other hand, they try to fly better than birds. They fly, try to dive deeper than fish. With nuclear submarines, and, and and in so many ways, we as humans we try to do what every other species is doing. Why? Why do we do that? Hmm? According to the Vedanta, the reason that we do that is because in human life something is happening that's not happening in animal time or bird time or plant time. Hmm? What's happening is the atma, the self is coming to the, to the fore. It's surfacing. The influence of matter is relaxed enough 
that you can think about yourself. And you can ask the question, why am I? What is the meaning? What is the purpose? Instead of how to eat, how to mate, how to sleep and wake up and make sure I'm okay, protect myself. All these how questions. Rather we get a why question. You see, nature can't ask why. Why can't nature ask the question why? Because nature is quantitative, not qualitative. We already discussed that. They say, why is a religious question? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a question of the self. It's a question of consciousness. Nature can't answer it. Nature can say, go over there to get the answer. Hmm? Do you understand? Nature can answer the how questions, how to eat, how to sleep. Every species knows how to eat, how to sleep. Nature's answering. But the why question, nature has to defer, oh, to its own master. You have to refer that question, it's a consciousness question, a qualitative question, a purposeful question, a question about meaning, about value. That has to be answered within consciousness, where values lie. Values don't lie in matter. They Matter only matters if it matters to you. Do you understand? We give meaning to matter. We make it mean something for ourselves. We're a unit of meaning. So so we have a sense in human life because this atma, the self, consciousness is coming to the surface and we feel like we could do anything. We should not be restricted by matter. We feel like that. And it's true. But we're not fully informed yet, and so we try to be free from matter <laughs> and conquer matter and fly in the sky hmm? and dive to the bottom of the ocean and do everything that everybody else is, seems to be doing and, and, and more. Hmm? Of course, in the process of doing it, we offend nature often and we make create more problems than, than good in, in, in the long run. But this question arises. The problem is people ask in the wrong place for the answer. You have to look within and to the self and its source. And it must have a source. We cannot be the source. Otherwise, why are we in the predicament that we're presently in? A spark is like the fire, but it's quite different too. You cannot cook with a spark. You cannot heat the house with just a spark. Similar, but not quite the same. So, this is the wisdom, right, of the Veda. You are, you are not this or that. Now you know, when you, now you undertake practices to realize this, then you become still, peaceful. And there's a kind of a, kind of a abstract joy to this, that I'm loving being. I love to exist. Because my existence is no longer troubled by identification with things that don't endure and suddenly musical chairs and I'm out. It's not like that anymore. Blissful in that sense. So this is a huge thing. My point here is, and I'll try to conclude with this, as we've been talking for some time, is that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in the school of Srimad Bhagavatam is a very bold school. We said Shruti Sara may come. It's the essence of the Shruti. Hmm? 
It wants to take us the full distance. It is a certain sound, shabda, spiritual sound. But the essence of all spiritual sound, it does not want to tell us merely the difference between consciousness and matter in the way I've been describing it thus far. It wants to tell us about the whole trajectory, prospect of consciousness within the world of consciousness. Not just, you're not this or that. Oh, I love, I'm loving to exist now. The Bhagavatam asked this question, what is better, loving to exist or existing to love? It's not a hard question. Nobody will get it wrong. Hmm? You understand? <laughs> loving to exist or existing to love? You see, loving to exist, it has some selfishness in it, doesn't it? <laughs> much. Existing to love has no selfishness in it whatsoever. Hmm? So it's a giving. It's a giving. We talked about the, the idea that the self is sought. It exists. It's chit. It's a knowing existence. Now we're talking about something else. We say if it knows the extent to which it exists, then it, it experiences in that context some ananda, some joy. The joy of knowing that, I, that, I, that I'm eternal. And I have no fear. Hmm? Is, is that like... particle of Ananda. I've talked about it in an abstract way, like zero in relation to negative numbers. The Bhagwat and Sri Chaitanya asked this curious question, bold question, are there any positive numbers? You venture there? Like a Columbus? And sail across, across the Atlantic? Maybe it's not flat. Let me find out. Something like that. Such a bold idea. Hmm? What is the prospect of consciousness? Are there any positive numbers? I'm feeling some ananda. The joy of knowing that I exist. But this, this is just a beginning of love. It's not, I'm not taking from anyone. Hmm? But to grow that ananda. Ananda means joy. Joy implies action. Because when you're joyful, you can't just sit. Just like you watch the football game and your team wins. You don't just go, good, nice game. That was blissful. <laughs> right? People are jumping. And so joy is a kind of fullness that, 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 that inherent in it is, is celebration. Hmm? Celebration of itself. It's a movement. Hmm? That's why we, we say ananda is, is, means love. Hmm? Joy. Happiness. Joy. Joy is a, this has, it, it, it seeks to share itself. Hmm? By its very nature. So it's, it, it has a movement. Hmm? But now, in order for it to move, it has to move in relation to something not of this world, there means that means there must be a, has to be a consciousness significant other, if you will. <laughs> hmm? This is the idea. 
that we may have relation with. And from Atmananda, the joy of being and loving to exist, we can go to Bhaktiananda, which is another kind of joy. It's the joy of where one is existing to love rather than loving to exist. See, it's very different. In Brahman, that qualitativeless absolute, you can love to exist. In Goloka Vrindavan, in Krishna Lila Seva, you can exist to love. And the love aspect becomes so large, so big. Brahman, how big is Brahman? That's right, you got it. <laughs> There's no answer to that. Now we talk about Vrindavan. It's this 32, what is it? And it's got some size to it. It's, it's, it's How big is Vaikuntha? Vaikuntha of Narayan. Oh, it's unlimited. But we go from a non-spatial, qualityless to a, something that has form and shape from Brahman to Vaikuntha and to go to Goloka. It becomes and the brudge, it becomes smaller and smaller. Hmm? It appears smaller by description, and we're limited by words. But if we get, look carefully, we see each of that those progressions are a progression. Something is getting bigger and bigger. What's getting bigger and bigger? Affection is getting bigger. Hmm? The affection is getting bigger. The more the love, the more the affection. The less concern one has with with the with knowing or existing in other words if i love someone i don't need to know anything and if i love someone i could i could live under a rock with them right in the hollow of a tree mm-hmm. everything's okay i might you know want this or that but if i have my love then okay mm-hmm. So Vrindavan is very small, simple, rural. Hmm? But love is very big there. Hmm? The union with the Absolute is huge. Hmm? It's so big that the fact that he's big is, is, is obscured by the love. Hmm? If the finite wants to get next to the infinite, the, finite, the infinite has to take a finite-like appearance for there to be intimacy. If, if I was God, and I'm not, but if I was to say to you, I'm God, and you believed me, you'd go, oh my God. <laughs> like that, and you would move back. Oh my God. Hmm? This is not Vrindavan. Hmm? No, it's not like that. Hmm? The full face of Ananda, the full face of love. Where knowing exists... And if there's knowing, there must be existence. But the knowing and the existence are diminished. The equation of Satchitananda is is different in Brahman than it is in Bhagawan and Swayam Bhagawan. Do you understand? In Brahman, the equation is concentrated on Sat. Chit and Ananda is a little small. With Paramatma, the Chit is prominent. Hmm? He's knowing everything. He's everywhere. Yogis want to become like the Paramatma. Be omniscient, omniscience. 
Chit is, chit is prominent there, Sat and Ananda taking a back seat. In Brahman, Sat is prominent, Chit and Ananda taking a back seat. In Bhagavan, and Swayam Bhagavan, Sri Krishna in particular, Ananda is obscuring, obscuring being and knowing, but in loving that is the best being and the best knowing at the same time. So this is the this is the very theologically exciting and interesting idea of Srimad Bhagavatam. It doesn't stop to tell us what you're not and leave us with the abstract joy of that, but boldly it goes forward hmm? and shines out in this regard amongst all the texts. And therefore it's referred to as Srimad Bhagavatam. Srimad, Sri here refers Bhagavat refers to, to Krishna. And Sri, Srimad means beautiful Krishna. Beautiful means Brahman is beautiful, not not beautiful, but when when the Godhead is imbued with Shakti, Swarup Shakti, then he becomes very beautiful, very charming. So the Shakti Tattva, the love of Krishna. Radha is the love of Krishna. Hmm? Srimad Bhagavatam means viewing the Bhagavat, Krishna, through the eyes of Radha, hmm? from her perspective. And in the very center of that book, hmm? the center of the center of that book, hmm? where Radha and Krishna have their union in love and Ras Panchajai. Hmm? The love of Radha predominates in such a way, it, it becomes so powerful that Krishna has to step back for a moment and think about it. Hmm? I'm the king of love. Rasaraj is my name. But now I have some existential crisis and doubt. Everyone, yogis, they worship me. Religious people, they worship me. Hmm? But what they don't know is I'm worshipping her. That's weird, he's thinking. That's odd. How can that be? Everybody says I'm God. I say it. But the secret truth about me is there's something in her that's, that I find venerable. Hmm? So he has to think about this. Of course, he's very smart, Krishna, very clever. So he thinks it very deeply. This is his, the existential crisis of God. This is what's going on in the Bhagavatam. God has an existential crisis. Am I God? If I am, why do I feel like there's someone superior to me? How, how, that doesn't make any sense. Hmm? Her beauty, her charm. He thinks about it and he realizes, I get it now, he says. There is something in me. It's in me. But only she sees it that makes her the way she is. Hmm. So everything's okay. <laughs> I'm God. Hmm. It's something in me that makes her the way she is that makes me attracted to her. But only she can see it. Now I have to see it. How will I see it? She'll have to give it to me. How will I, how how will how how will I convince her? I've told that people approach me. I will reciprocate accordingly. But I can, I 
she has something more than I do, a vision of me that I, even I don't possess. Hmm? So there in the Bhagavatam, he makes a vow. Hmm? He says, your, your sadhuness hmm, is its own reward. And the only way I can pay you back, this is what he says, is to become a sadhu in the world and make devotees for you. Make people the followers of the of the Gopi Jana, the Gopi people. Hmm? This is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And when Bhakti Vinod, although raised with as I began, with a Western education and a bias towards the Bhagavatam, which looked like some book that's maybe not part of the Shruti or the Smriti, maybe some interpolation of some unscrupulous people who have made a god who's a playboy and an adulterer. I don't think that can be part of our, our religion. The Victorian sensibilities of the English are very offended by this. Um, so he de- developed this kind of bias until what? Until he came upon the Chaitanya Charita Amrita. Sri Chaitanya Charita Amrita. The immortal ca- character of consciousness, not just consciousness, I am, but the immortal nectarian character of consciousness. The living life force. There you go. What is its potential? Hmm? All these things. And when he understood the Bhagavat through the light of the person of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Chaitanya Charitamrita, he became a convert from his Western sensibilities <laughs> to Bhakti hmm, and the big, very pr- huge, huge figure and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's um, lineage. And we are all sitting here because of his work. The idea he had came in him, as Pujapachita Maharshi used to say, for bringing this to the world. His disciple, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, gave it some shape in the form of his mission. My Guru Maharshi, he took it all over the world. And persons like my Siksha Guru, Sri Bhakti, have asked us to think deeply about this, consider all the, what, what, what's transpired hmm, in these decades, and what kind of prospect has come before us. We're a small group here in a small town, hmm, and there's a school nearby, 10,000 Buddhas, we need 10,000 bhaktas. <laughs> <laughs> we got to take it over. And Ukaya alone, <laughs> right, to tell this news. This will, this will cause the Buddha to get up from the Bodhi tree. <laughs> and dance around the tree, exactly. Yes, this is... So we like the Buddha, we want to help him. <laughs> hmm? So I'll start with that. I, I was going to speak a little bit about a book that I wrote recently. I published a new book called Sacred Preface. It's available here. Some of the devotees have brought it. But it's about Chaitanya Charitamrita, this book. It's a commentary on the, the, the invocation to Chaitanya Charitamrita, which is 14 Sanskrit verses. And so much has been placed in, the, in those verses. And there's a commentary, an auto-commentary by the author of Chaitanya Charitamrita, Krishna Skaviraj, so I've augmented that and commented on it in, in, in the book. So forgive me, but I'm a little preoccupied with this, these, uh, the beauty and uh, excellence and 
power and importance of Chaitanya Charitamrita. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about it tonight. Thank you very much. Any question? You have the book? It's over here somewhere. I can see, yeah. Any question? Hmm? You saw it? Okay. Good. Maybe just, just, I mean, there's matter and we're pulling away from matter and we're, we're entering into the, 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 the conscious realm. But then again, then the acharyas are saying that you can use all the matter again for the consciousness. And again, it's that kind of... Yeah, see, I'm kind of connecting it, but I'm not... Well, it's one thing to be used by matter. It's another thing to use matter, which would really make it matter in a meaningful sense. So the, the, the idea is, is to... Is, is, that's why, as I say, there's positive numbers. So, in the, in the, in the, when we come to the zero, then matter has no purpose. And therefore, philosophers like Shankar thought it doesn't even really exist. He's wrong about that, but it's not what it appears to be, but it, but it does exist. But, so, but for ourselves, then, in bhakti, then, um, then we, we see the uh, objective world in relation to its source, and we ex- by excavating its connection with its source, we make use of it, so to speak. Uh, we 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 do. Maya is is considered to be a maidservant, right, of 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 bhakti. I was saying I didn't conclude that, but there's two forms of Maya: guna Maya and and jiva Maya. Guna Maya means what's what's Maya made out of. And there's different ways in which it's talked about, but the overarching t- talk is it's it's like magic, it's the transformation of the gunas uh, and so forth. You can't measure it, you can't know it in that sense. The other side of Maya is jiva Maya, the power of Maya to delude. So coming out from underneath that power, then we can move in the world and interact with matter in ways that don't constitute being used by matter, but using matter for something that matters, for, for purposeful existence, right? For proclaiming the uh, the truth about God. So that's why, if you look carefully at the Bhagavatam, you see when the Bhagavatam talks about matter, for the most part, it tries to talk about matter in the objective world in such a way that you can get inspiration to... To, to look within. It talks about it as the universal form of God, for example. Hmm? That's one of the ways. The fifth canto, this cosmog- cosmographic explanation, is said by Vishnu Chakrithakura to be an explanation for the yogis in the audience. Hmm? Yoga Mishra Bhaktas, whose primary focus is yoga, hmm? mixing in some bhakti, not bhakti Mishra, where bhakti has the higher hand, could lead to Shantarasa, but no, different. They wanted to know. And so, for this purpose, Pariksit asked, because Pariksit's a bhakta, so his focus is on the deity, the form, not some abstract, subtle, that's yoga. You know, yoga got all this subtle stuff, right? (laughs) 
uh, subtle worlds, if you will. So that's the, so, but it, anyway, the point of it is that it was a, it's a way of explaining the world by which focusing upon one could come to know better about the self. So, and that in ultimately inherently is the purpose of purpose of matter, the purpose of matter, because the jivas are in susupti. If they don't have bodies, they can't get mukti. Hmm? So, from a far-reaching perspective, matter is there only to help the jiva get get mukti. Yeah. <laughs> what else? Nice to meet with you all. What's your name? My name is Parthasarathi Das Maharaj. Parthasarathi Das Gijaya. Is this your son? This is my son, yeah. What's your name? Pranav. 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 And this is your son? No. It's your son. Right. What's your name again? Radharaman. Right, Radharaman. Cowboy. <laughs> I saw you playing with cows. <laughs> Cow herd boy. <laughs> Mm. And his brother Kiridari. Yeah. 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 And your name, Vikram? Vikram. Vikram. Okay. Nice to meet you. Your family's here too? Um, I see. Your wife is here? Yeah, my wife is here. What is your name? Purnam. Uh, what is your name? Nice to meet you. Hmm. What's your name? My name is Nikki. Nikki. Nice to meet you, Nikki. Hmm. And? Abhay Charandas. Abhay Charandas. He's my brother. Ah. <laughs> okay. Different father. Yeah. Bani Nath. Bani Nath. Okay. Well, I think I know everybody else pretty much. Uh, so nice to meet you, and uh, I hope to come and visit us sometime at Adarya. Siman Mahaprabhu ki jai, Jai Sri Bhakti Vedanta Swami Prabhupada ki jai, Bhakti Lakshmi Dev Goswami Maharaj ki jai, Bhakti Sadanta Sarasthitaku Prabhupada ki jai, Shri Bhakti Vinod Paribar ki jai, Gaur Bhakti Brinda ki jai, Gaur Premanande.